Welcome to the Energetic Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa LaFera, an astrologer, tarot consultant, and all-around creative from sunny San Diego, California. And this is the 70th episode of the podcast for the week of September 16th, 2019. So let's break it down a bit. Here's what to expect. The goal is to help guide and prepare you for the utmost awareness of the energy in the moment. For if you use the energy consciously, it has a better chance of working for you. I'll kick off the show with a weekly astro report, along with a few tarot polls and our Animal Ambassador of the Week. Then a guest will join me in conversation around a chosen topic. And this week, I'm so happy to welcome San Diego-based professional astrologer and the head of Kepler College, Kenneth Miller, who's going to join me in a discussion on astrology, two roads, one destination. So before we get started here, please remember, as always, take what resonates and leave the rest, because only you know you best. So thank you so much for joining me here today, and if you'd like to show appreciation for my work and get early Sunday access to the podcast for as little as $1 per month, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com backslash energetic principles. I also have a tip jar over at energeticprinciples.com if you would like to make a one-time donation. So once again, that is energeticprinciples.com. Okay, so let's get down to this week's astro report. Our lunar lady starts out the week now in her waning cycle and is still cruising through the fires of Aries before moving into Taurus to slow down and stabilize on Tuesday. She hangs out in this grounded zone throughout the midweek until moving into communicative Gemini on Thursday and where she will eventually head to her last quarter moon position at the tail end of the twins Saturday evening. She will then make a prompt move into the sensitive waters of Cancer where she will spend the rest of the weekend. So just a quick heads up, all time approximations are for North America. So if you live in Europe at about eight hours, and if you are in Australia or the East at about 17 hours, or basically the following day. And keep in mind that timing isn't always precise as astrological transits, otherwise known as the connections that planets make to one another, have varied emphasis as they apply and separate. So it's quite possible to feel the energy sooner or later than the exact moment of contact. Well, my friends, we have uh, yet another interesting week before us here. So what do we have going on? Well, we start out with Mercury and Venus making an opposition to Chiron. We also have Mercury squaring Saturn later in the week, but midweek Saturn is turning direct, so Saturn is stationing. We also have Mars making a trine to Pluto, and we have Jupiter and Neptune making their final square in the skies, which has been uh, very much coloring the astrological vibe of 2019. Now, of course, we have also have a last quarter moon in Gemini, which is going to help us to close out Virgo season. So let us waste no time and dive right in. 
On Monday, we start out the week with the moon in Aries, and she will make a square to Pluto during the day. Now, also of note, we have Mercury and Venus making an opposition to Chiron. And so this is happening over Monday and Tuesday, and we'll likely have felt maybe the emphasis over the weekend uh, before this podcast airs. But so let's break this down a bit. So Mercury, Mercury, that's our learning, our perception, our communication, uh, you know, news that comes in, emails, conversations. And Venus is relationships, uh, grace, where we open up and draw in, how we balance things and harmonize uh, and act from our values, or at least open to those values. Now, the opposition is essentially where we have a bird's eye view or something, or maybe there's a tug of war between energy or or we're confronted with an outside influence and we have to make a decision. And so all that energy is opposing Chiron. And Chiron is, a, uh, you know, we hear it as the wounded healer, but to me, these are little triggers that can come up for us, but triggers that are really healing opportunities that might be disguised in some uh, type of wound or pain. And so really there's a lot of wisdom that can come from Chiron, but sometimes that's through painful choices or experiences that we have to go through. And so we are going to have to put on our best Venus and Libra in the early half of the week as both Mercury and Venus, now in the sign of the scales, oppose Chiron in Aries. And there is currently wisdom to be had in our attraction ability and how we communicate and express our intentions to others. And there may be a tug of war between the right level of assertion mixed with fairness and diplomacy. We may come on too strong or not strong enough. And there will be trigger moments firing off at this time that can help us more clearly discern what needs a full attack versus graceful discretion. So find the balance and lean towards the universal love of Venus and Libra. For if you open up to her wisdom, she can help us communicate good intentions in whatever situation we encounter. So the bottom line for Monday is that this day has some hairiness to it because we have an impatient moon in Aries who's mingling with a square to Pluto while both Mercury and Venus talk to Chiron. So there may be a level of assertion, irritation, or anger that gets to us today. Yet I think within this configuration, there's a lot we can learn from where we get riled up and that will lead us to wanting to make changes. So pick the low-hanging fruit today and count to 10 if necessary. Now, on Tuesday, we have the moon now in Taurus, and she will make a conjunction to Uranus about midday. So the bottom line for for Taurus for Tuesday, they're very alike there, uh, is that energy stables out and grounds down a bit, but not before Uranus has its way with us. So there may be some disruption in areas that are deep-rooted, so give yourself some space today if needed. It's also possible that we will feel emotionally solid in our current awakenings. You know, whatever is actually being stirred up from that deep-rooted place. And then we're going to want to shake off some dead weight so that we can find greater peace and stillness within, especially after that Aries energy. So take your time today and plod the course in a new and innovative way. Now, on Wednesday, we have the moon still in Taurus. She'll make a trine to Saturn, a sextile to Neptune, and a trine to Mars and Pluto. Um, So there's a lot of flowing energy here on Wednesday. Now, also of note, we have Saturn who is stationing direct. And so that will be happening very early in the morning here on the Pacific coast uh, while we sleep here in North America. 
And so what is happening with Saturn stationing? Well, this is likely to be a Saturn-flavored week. Uh, we'll just say that, especially, you know, since the taskmaster over in Capricorn is slowing down to a halt to station direct after being in a retrograde period since late April. And so we've had time to mull over and integrate long-term considerations while also examining the viability of our commitments in the workaday world. And now all that internal reconfiguration can begin to set up structure in our outer existence. And so if you find obstacles or roadblocks in your way this week, take a pause and find patience, for they may be there for a reason. If you are ready to implement new routines and new projects, yes, by all means, get a leg up on that. But just remember, take your time. Saturn loves it when we plan carefully and are fully committed to our goal. But keep in mind, he is more of a tortoise than a hare. It's all about the end game while staying focused and honoring the process. There is a start to grand manifestation energy that flows through, particularly midweek, and we will be tested on our foundational starts in just a few weeks' time as all the planets in Libra will challenge the equilibrium of our blueprint. So take advantage of these last days of Virgo and get that plan down on paper while Saturn is strong and full of concentration. So the bottom line for Wednesday is, is that today we have a grand Earth trine as Saturn is stationing. And I think this may be one of the most productive days of the week. So line your Earth energy and get to work. We can begin, begin, stabilize, and finish up where we need to as long as we just stay focused on the task ahead. There may be a grand reconfiguration that is taking place as all the energy meets together. So prepare for your reality to flow towards new arrangement today. Life may look very different past this point. So just be aware of that, whether that's externally or internally. Uh, There is a shift taking place. Now, on Thursday, the moon is still in Taurus, but will move into Gemini around mid-afternoon here on the Pacific coast, and along the way, she'll make a trine to the sun. But also of note, we have Mars making a trine to Pluto. And so Mars, our, our action energy, our drive, our, you know, what motivates us and how we assert ourselves is going to be flowing uh, with no boundaries towards Pluto's transformation type of energy uh, or where deep emotional content can come up or, you know, just a purification energy that is stimulating us towards great change. So when these two meet in the skies, especially in a flowing, no-holds-barred configuration, there is a sweeping force that can align our action energy with making great changes in our lives. As these two will be meeting in earth signs, this is a purification of our earthly realities where we can cut out the old to begin the new, which can be incredibly rewarding if we are aligned with our internal integrity. And that is the key here. This is not change for change's sake or destruction for the hell of it. This is about making cuts so that we can trim the fat that is weighing us down. There will be an intensity to our action energy this week that can just flow with extreme focus, yet we will need the courage to align that focus where it is needed most so we can do what we know needs to be done. For if you are in integrity, like I said before, there is nothing stopping you now. So the bottom line for Thursday is that here we have a two-part day as we spend the first half plodding along still in Taurus as the sun trines in from Virgo. 
And we are likely to be feeling pretty solid with our outer reality as emotional harmony regains itself. Once Luna moves into Gemini, the mind will become stimulated and conversation will be up as we head towards last quarter in just a few days' time. So air out your thoughts and ideas with friends and family, as it can bring balance to any uncertainty. Now, on Friday, we have the moon in Gemini, and she will make an early, early, early morning trine to Venus, uh, a trine to Mercury in the morning, an opposition to Jupiter, and then a square to Neptune. And so the bottom line for Friday is that the Jupiter-Neptune square is lit up by the moon this evening. Uh, and which we're going to talk about here in just a second. And so the day is likely to be busy as Mercury trines in from Libra, creating a lot of back and forth. And there can be some doubt or uncertainty regarding where the future is headed as the heady moon in Gemini creates tension with both Jupiter and Neptune. So don't try to analyze things to death. Instead, latch onto a positive affirmation around where you're headed and allow yourself the space time and space to just float downstream. And do your best not to rush uh, or jump to any conclusions at this time. On to Saturday. So now we have our last quarter moon in Gemini. And along the way, she's going to square Mars and then square the sun. And also note that is the day of, of International Day of Peace, which I find very interesting uh, here, which I'll get into in just a second. So let's talk about that last quarter moon, which will be uh, taking place here in the evening on uh, the Pacific coast. And so if you're anywhere else in the world, this might be happening more on Sunday for you, but we're going to feel it brewing definitely uh, throughout the later half of this week, especially while the moon is in Gemini. And so last quarter is going to be taking place at 28 degrees and 49 minutes of Gemini. And it's actually a bit of a unique last quarter in the sense that last month's lunar cycle also had last quarter at zero degrees Gemini. So there is almost like a double wrapping up type of energy here, which, you know, how Gemini, I suppose. Of course, the sign would want two last quarters. (laughs) They are the twins. Now, as this is the crisis of consciousness position, we are likely to be tested on our mental attitude and our overall ability to communicate and use that correspondence effectively. We may also be challenged with our flexibility or the fact that some uncertainty still looms around us. And that's where the Jupiter-Neptune square comes in. So Jupiter square Neptune. Uh, Just a reminder, you know, Jupiter is what pushes us forward, expands our world, and gives us growth and movement. And, you know, squares, they create friction, but they also create action. Uh, And so we have events that take place, but they can be challenging at times. And, of course, Neptune, you know, Neptune is a very dreamy and inspirational type of vibe where spirit is speaking. But it also can cloud us and confuse us and bring in doubt or dissolve something that we're trying to push towards. Um, So this is going to be the last pass of this um, aspect that has essentially been here since all 2019. And I will refer... uh, you guys to the fact that Lisa and I, Lisa Allen and I discussed this aspect during episode 35, the week of January 7th, um, which was the Aquarius season episode. So if you want to go back and hear our initial thoughts, that could be entertaining (laughs) as we come around to the last pass of this. So now am I right in saying last week was a bit of a haze? 
Well, not only was the Pisces full moon, uh, you know, and a handful of Neptune transits to blame, but we also have been inching ever closer to this last pass of the Jupiter-Neptune square that has been blowing up clouds of confusion mixed within our dream life consciousness for the entirety of 2019. And so divinity is speaking once again this week, and we will have moments where synchronicity is on the scene, and invisible guides seem to direct growth towards a particular path. And this shall be an interesting mix when we consider Saturn stationing simultaneously, and why I think there is the possibility to bring some awesome creation energy down to Earth if we just stay practical in the process. There is bound to be major action this week in the world's sphere, particularly in politics, so see what comes down the pipeline. It's all Saturn from here on out, so take in these last months of Jupiter and Sagittarius while you can. So the bottom line for Saturday is is that, ironically, on our International Day of Peace, there is some disruption in the skies as the last quarter moon in Gemini squares both Mars and the Sun. And there's likely to be a mental irritation that affects us emotionally today while we simultaneously interact with a lot of busy energy that is pushing us towards completion. So try not to lose your head within it all. Embrace occasional moments of meditation while also deflecting any anxiety that may arise from uncertainty. For if you do, I think you'll be feeling quite solid in the mental space. Now on Sunday, the moon is now in Cancer, and she'll make a sextile to Uranus, a square to Venus, and then an opposition to Saturn. And so also note, we have Mercury squaring Saturn on Sunday. And so once again, you know, Mercury is our perception, you know, news that comes in, communications, uh, how we think about it all. And so as we know, squares create events, friction, action, challenge. And so we are challenged with the notion of Saturn, which is structure and responsibility and what we've committed ourselves to and stepping into our authority and creating a foundation. It sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, welcome to Saturn. Um, But here we have our first planetary aspect to take place since Saturn has regained forward motion. And our minds are going to be challenged by the responsibilities and commitments we have on our plate. There may be a plethora of ideas swirling about, or perhaps an intellectual back and forth that is getting in the way of making a solid plan. Indecision can be a factor as our minds are confronted with the idea of what is fair or the issue of justice. If you do need to architect a plan in place or get serious about an idea, this aspect can help activate that energy. This could also be a time when we communicate our boundaries and long-term plans within partnerships. And so there may be activation or friction in that area as well. Whatever is underway, we are focused on new starts and are pivoting our direction towards what we desire next. So the bottom line for Sunday is is that this may be a sensitive day with some mood triggers and a possibility of going to the dark side as the moon in Cancer squares Venus and opposes Saturn. Yet this energy can also serve as an emotional activating force for what is truly important or of value in the long term in our lives. So just feel into it. And also remember that you'll be in a subjective space. So do your best to step outside and open up to looking at things from all angles. So the bottom line here is, uh, you know, for the week is that Uh, We are wrapping up this year's Virgo season as the equinox is geared up to greet us at next Monday's threshold. 
And so there is a closing down and a sliding into home base at this time. And we may have to do some reconfiguration of our plan in the process. Find patience for yourself and others this week and keep your eye on the ultimate prize. All right, so let's take a look at our cards because they always add extra something. And I think this week they really, uh, they just spoke to my sensibilities so well. And so I drew the King of Pentacles as the focus and the Seven of Cups as the grounding. Now, with the King of Pentacles as the focus, it is time to concentrate our efforts on the pragmatic planning and management of our earthly affairs. And so I love this combined with the Seven of Cups especially as Saturn stations near the last uh, Jupiter-Neptune square. For we need to find stability and decisiveness in the large projects or major tasks that are underway in our lives, while also rooting out what is impractical or idealistic. Taking control and owning your power will be the key to success, but only if the plan is sound and viable. So put on those discernment goggles, embody poise and patience, and have a good look at the prospects before you proceed. Now, with the Seven of Cups as the grounding, we may have many creative babies that are living in the dark or swirling around in our imaginations, and we will need to use the king to help cut through any illusions. Some visions will not be worth our time and effort, while other dreams are completely possible as long as there is a practical plan in place. There may be choices to be made and options on the table, and we will need that king to help weed out what is only wishful thinking so we can make smart moves. Keep a firm yet positive grip on reality, and you'll be in a good position this week. Now, last but certainly not least, this show is brought to you by this week's animal ambassador, the Raven. Our Corvid friend is here to send the message that it is time to prepare for change, especially as we are close to the equinox and the changing of the seasons, which is preceded by Saturn stationing, Mars trining Pluto, and the last Jupiter-Neptune square. So you can bet there is a shift taking place. As ravens are very clever birds, they also hold the intellectual capability to help bypass whatever obstacles may be in their way so that their talents may shine. Yet first we have to be in the right headspace for our visions to be clear. So check in with yourself this week, examine your intentions, and make sure everything is in line for the greater good of all, for that will set you up to be able to own your power and make transformative changes in your life. All right, so I, you know, this is my normal Patreon spiel. And so last week, uh, late last week, I uh, released the second uh, episode of my Astro Storytime. And so this month's feature, which is clocking in at about an hour and 15, so these are longer than I expected, but I like the way that they're turning out. Uh, I focused on um, looking at uh, the astrology of some windy mattresses, <laughs> which you'll have to come and check that out. Uh, 
I look at the astrology of uh, Hurricane Dorian hitting the Bahamas and why that area in particular was uh, ravaged by the storm. And then the long feature is on the fascinating and intriguing character of Jodie Foster, which, oh my gosh, her astrology is fascinating. Uh, Her stories are just incredible, her her life. And so you are not going to want to miss this. So if you want to sign up to watch the program, uh, you can do so over at Patreon for a $6 per month fee. Um, And so once you sign up, you have access to last month's program and any program going forward. So over time, I'll be building this catalog uh, that will be, I I think, a worthwhile subscription. And of course, I also have my show notes for sale for $3 per month. So if you want to have a visual, uh, you know, readout of all that I just talked about, uh, you can sign up for that. Um, Or you can combine the two for $8 a month to get everything early access to the podcast, the show notes, and Astro Storytime. So to check that out, you can go over to Patreon at patreon.com backslash energetic principles. Okay, now let's meet our guest. All right, I am so happy to welcome this week's very special guest. We have Kenneth Miller here in person, nonetheless. In the studio. In the studio. Studio. Thank you for joining me, Kenneth. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, and so Kenneth obviously is here in San Diego with us. <laughs> with us, made this made it easy here. Uh, but for those of you uh, who have not heard of him before, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> who are you? Sure, I'm an astrologer here in San Diego. I do Indian astrology. Uh, I have a master's degree in the history of astrology. Um, I'm also currently the president of Kepler College, which is one of the online uh, learning centers for astrology. Uh, I also serve on the ESAR board, which is one of the big astrology um, nonprofit uh, boards. And I do consulting work, I do writing work, and I do teaching work. Jack of many trades. Jack of many trades. <laughs> well, in one trade, kind of. And I've been uh, I've been a professional astrologer for. Let's see. It's been a while since I've thought da, of this. Da, da. Let's see. It's nineteen. Wow, maybe fifteen years or fourteen, thirteen years. <laughs> Just going down in number. <laughs> well, maybe like, fourteen. Was it two thousand and four, two thousand and five? But anyway, a good yeah. amount of time. Yeah, a good amount of time. A good amount of time. And that's actually. Uh, one of the amazing things that we get to talk about today is because Kenneth has dabbled in many different types of astrology, and you're one of the few people in this world that are, uh, you know, fluent in the in because it's not just our tropical astrology. There are right. other options out there, yes. and so that's why we have the topic today. Uh, and Kenneth chose this title, which I really like, uh, <laughs> which is astrology: two roads, one destination. Um, so now, before we get down that path, and since we're still talking about, you know, kind of what got you, or, you know, <laughs> your background. Yes. Tell me what sparked your interest in astrology. Like, what was the entrance point where you're like, oh, what is, what's this? What's this? That is a question that has been lost to the mists of time, because my <laughs> earliest memory is my mom reading me, my earliest astrology memory yes. <laughs> is my mom reading to me the horoscope column. Mm. And as soon as I was able to like read comics, the comics back when people read newspapers, the comics and the horoscopes were always on the same That's page. Right. So I would, I would read that 
And so for as far back as I can remember, I remember, um, you know, that you could divide humanity into these 12 categories, depending mm-hmm. on when their, their birth, uh, birthday was. The big moment for me was at age 12 when I stumbled upon an astrology magazine. It might have been American Astrology or Dell Horoscope or whatever that was being printed back then. And I opened it up and I remember seeing a chart for the first time and realizing, of course you would look at all the other planets and not just the sun. Like, why didn't I think of that? Like, why did, because I would buy the little, you know, your sunside guide for the year at the supermarket and stuff like that. I was definitely a very young consumer (laughs) of uh, sun sign astrology. But when I saw that it actually was everything in the sky that you pay attention to, um, then I started saving my allowance money up and buying astrology books. Aww. And that was the start. I love it. That's <laughs> that was perfect. The start. Well, you're actually following, follow, uh, falling in with a handful of people that seem to have kind of made that click right at that Jupiter return, like the first Jupiter return. Yeah. Because that's what I'm noticing is it's the first Jupiter return, sometimes the second. And then there's sometimes with people like me, it was more the Saturn return mm-hmm. uh, that introduced that. And then some lucky people are just born into it and ta-da you're an astrologer (laughs) but I love that so you were so then your mind was widened to like oh now I have all these planets to look like and look at and yeah never turn back never turn back and now look at all these things you're juggling so many planets and 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 theories and (laughs) and ways of doing this who knew knew? oh the mystery of life (laughs) so all right well let us talk about uh because Kenneth is, uh, are you primarily a Vedic astrologer? Is that where you're? Yeah. So when people pay me for a reading, I primarily do Indian astrology, which is what I call Vedic astrology. And the reason why I call it that is because to me, um, calling it Vedic astrology is like calling Western astrology, biblical astrology. (laughs) Now, is there astrology in the Bible? Absolutely. Can you teach yourself astrology from the Bible? No, you can't. And it's the same with the Vedas, which are the holy scriptures of Hinduism. There is astrology in there, but you can't teach yourself that. And astrology, Indian astrology is practiced by all Indians or just about all Indians, regardless of religion. So it's not just Hindus, it's Jains, it's Buddhists, Mm. um, it's even um, Islamic people. And so they're doing this astrology that I call Indian astrology. So we don't need to get in the... Vedic was picked a couple of decades ago because at the time they thought it was value neutral because prior to that it was called Hindu astrology. Mm -hmm. So it was a step in the right direction. But I think Indian astrology is a better... Descriptor. It's the astrology that arose in the Indian subcontinent. Okay, so that's good to know. So yeah. we'll refer to the, it as you know from here on out as Indian astrology Beautiful. versus would you we say Western astrology, tropical yeah. astrology, uh, Western and Indian. We'll talk about tropical and sidereal in a few minutes. I'm sure. <laughs> yes, because uh, that's where the difference seems. Yeah, well, yeah. not. I mean, there's sure plenty That'll of differences, but yeah. that's kind of the big one. Because yeah. I mean, I'm one of those people that have a chart where you yeah. put it in a uh, Western system. It's one thing. You put it in the Indian system. I'm a totally different person. I'm like, who am I today? Let me choose a chart. <laughs> um, so, Kenneth, what's the difference there? Why are we seeing different signs, different planets in these systems? Okay. So, Indian astrology and Western astrology are siblings of the same parent. 
mm. which we might call Mesopotamian astrology, which predates all of this. And uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, they actually thought the planets were their gods floating around, moving around in the heavens. And so the priests stayed up all night tracking what they were doing. And they were looking for like weird things mm. and patterns. And, oh, the last time this happened, there was a famine. You know, we got to tell the king. And then when they noted that inauspicious signs were appearing in the sky, they would then do uh, rituals to try to gain favor of the gods and stave the famine and, and things like that. Mm. Um, then what happens is, so that's done for a couple of thousand years. Uh, and... Almost every culture has some form of sky-watching mm-hmm. astrology, but we won't get into all that. I'm not, <laughs> so I'm not trying to exclude that. There's, you know, Mesoamerica. You know, everyone pretty much that had a cloudless sky yeah, you looked figured up. something out. Yeah. It's probably the only thing to do at night. Correct. <laughs> it's dark. That's right. Um, so what happens is the I, what we are calling astrology, that notion of casting a chart for the moment someone was born, that idea seems to arise in both the Greek-speaking Hellenistic world Mm -hmm. uh, and India at around the same time. Mm. And so Westerners will say, well, we invented it, and the Indians copied it, and Indians will say, we invented it, and you guys copied it. And um, that's a whole nother Nother thing. thing. (laughs) That's a whole nother thing that's um, complicated because it is such a simple idea that all it would, t- I mean, imagine that you're used to looking for sky opening omens mm-hmm. and, and paying attention to things. And I say, hey, have you ever thought of like looking at the chart at the time someone was born? We only have to have that conversation once. And you're like, oh, my, that's a genius that's idea. idea. <laughs> it's like when I opened that uh, magazine when I was 12. <gasps> Why didn't I think of this before? You know, of course, you're going to look at everything. So it's, it's very easy to see how quick that idea could, could travel. And then what you have happen is the development of these two great horoscopic astrological traditions. Mm-hmm. The horoscope is the chart for the moment that you were born or the moment of whatever you're considering. Uh, in the West, they decided that the zodiac would be tied to the seasons. Mm-hmm. So that the first day of spring in North America would be the beginning of Aries. And they divided the year up into 12 equal segments. And those are the signs that we know and love when people go, I'm a Gemini. That's what you're referring to. What you're saying is that the sun was in the area of Gemini in relation to the seasonal cycle. Yeah. Now, that was intentional. It wasn't a mistake. They knew there were stars there. They knew that the stars were doing something weird, which I'll get into in a second. But they were like, you know what? We're going to anchor it to spring or, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in uh, the Southern Hemisphere, you know, fall. Like, that's going to be the yeah. beginning of, of it. The Aries equal is going to start. equal night. Yes. yes. The equal day, equal night, around the 21st of March, that's going to be the beginning of our zodiac. And we're going to divide that space that the sun moves around into 12 equal parts. Now, the Indians, before this, were paying attention to the moon and where it was every night and what stars it was by. They were a star-watching culture that went way back. So when they got the idea of casting a horoscope, they used the stars as an, as an anchor mm-hmm. instead of the seasons. Yeah. Now, what complicates this is that about this time, when this idea is spreading everywhere, on the first day of spring, the first star of Aries was also rising. So 
springtime and the stars were kind of lined up. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> because of the way the Earth wobbles, mm-hmm. there's a disconnect. And from the tropical or Western astrology point of view, it looks like the stars are moving backwards mm-hmm. slowly over time. So that now you need to subtract about 23 or 24 degrees, depending on when you were born, from your Western chart to get where your things are in Indian astrology. Yeah. Um, now, from the Indian perspective, they're like, oh, no, it's the seasons that are moving forward from the point of view of our reference of, of time and space. You know? So it just depends on where you're coming from. But, but, but there is a movement. The ancients were aware of this. It's just that the Indians, because they'd already been looking at the stars, they anchored it to the stars. And uh, in the West, they made the decision to, to anchor it to, to the seasons. And so that generated um, two different zodiacs, mm-hmm. essentially, with the same name. So when I, a client comes to see me and they have their moon in Aries in a Western chart, that that moon could, could be in Taurus. So the first question, I, the first thing I always say to people, and I wanted to say this to you at the introduction, but I held my tongue, is <laughs> it's not that you're a different person when you change the chart. It's because things mean different things. Mm. So that the moon doesn't mean the exact same thing in Western astrology as it does in Indian astrology, oh. which is how you're able to hold both of those things as true. And the analogy or, or metaphor I like to use is like Chinese medicine. So in Western medicine, we, have, we know the organs, like the liver and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Chinese medicine also uses the English word liver, but it describes a whole bunch of things that would not be included in Western uh, medicine. And in fact, it's very common uh, for someone in North America, depending on the time of year, to visit their acupuncturist, and the acupuncturist will say, oh, your liver is sluggish. If you run to your medical doctor and go, oh, I was told my liver was sluggish, they're going to run a blood test and go, your liver is fine. The acupuncturists don't know what they're talking about. No, they do know what they're talking about. It's just in Chinese medicine, liver means something different, different. than it does gotcha. over here. And they can complement each other. So that's a way to approach. I mean, you should be able to go to a good Western astrologer one day and a good Indian astrologer the next day, and what they say will overlap. Why they're saying it will be different, mm. but it should uh, should overlap. Ah, and so this is this is where we get our two roads, one destination. This is where we get our two roads, one, yes. one destination. So the moon is just we're just looking at different. Uh, <laughs> A different approach to what the actual body itself means or what that yes. could mean uh, through the interpretation. Yes. And then the sign adds some like coloring characteristic on top of whatever. Yeah. And, and the signs are really treated differently in the traditions. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing we should probably throw out there, and hopefully your audience is being bored by all this history, but <laughs> Western astrology has had the you know, has had a t- tough time uh, in the timeline because it started out with a whole bunch of different ethnic people who all spoke Greek because that was like the empire. Mm. Um, and then when the Romans took over, Roman took over, it was still you know, like Greek was still the international language for a long time. So you had what we call Hellenistic astrology or Greek astrology, not that only people in Greece were doing it, but everyone that was speaking Greece, Egyptians, everyone else, the Greek language, you had that tradition then it gets translated into Persian. Mm-hmm. Then it gets translated into Arabic. Then it gets translated into Latin. And then it gets translated into 
you know, pre-modern and modern Western languages. But at every juncture, there's a little disconnect. And you have something called the church who goes, we don't like this astrology. (laughs) I mean, if you want to predict the weather, that's okay. But, uh, you know, we need to have people free, their souls to be free so they can either sin or not sin and not be like influenced by these planets. So the church had a problem with certain kinds of astrology. And then science had a problem when we Mm. realized that the earth wasn't in the middle, which was kind of the model that strung uh, all of astrology together. And that did a a really uh, tough job on on astrology. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Now, if we go to India, we have a different story. Mm. We have it being absorbed into the religions of India, dialed in. So the priests are actually doing the astrology in the villages, Mm. serving people. You have Sanskrit as the quote, international language, you know, India is a, is a country of like a zillion languages. Um, but Sanskrit was the kind of international language mm. of the different regions. So you have texts being passed down for 2000 years in Sanskrit, people writing commentaries on it, people learning astrology from their uh, parents mm. um, and it thriving in an environment where it was well-respected to this day. Not yeah. to say that there aren't scientists in India who will say that's a whole, you know, astrology is There's always some bad. Yeah. <laughs> but when I'm in India and I say I'm an astrologer, <gasps> suddenly I'm accorded all this respect I never experience uh, in the United States. No wonder you practice <laughs> Indian astrology. Now we know the secret. <laughs> that's funny. Well, yeah. so the, we see the difference of like, uh, here we kind of have a telephone game situation going yes. on in the Western world um, with all these different influences coming in versus uh, Indian astrology, which was able to build a more solid foundation because they, you know, they built off of what they knew. There was less change and there was more just overall acceptance of it within their culture. Yes. Yeah. Now that's interesting. Yeah. Um, it gets a lot to think about and why, and probably why we're actually so diverse as uh, Western uh, astrologers because of that. And now, you know, there's so many different Western systems that are yes. out there. And I'm sure there's a handful of different ones in India as there well. Are. Yeah, there are different. Um, but I could see why there'd be more variation over here based on that. Um, I mean, part of what happened in the West is we sort of lost, um, you know, in early 20th century astrology, they didn't know why things were, you know, there was no, no one was reading these old texts. They just weren't available in English. Um, as to what is the rationale for this. It doesn't make sense. I'm going to throw it out. And we have the rise of all kinds of new astrologies like cosmobiology and Uranian. Maybe we'll Mm -hmm. talk about that a little later too. But um, so there's been a lot of astrological innovation. And I'm not against innovation, but I'm just saying it's different when you have roots that go deep. Um, And we are in the West have for the last 20 years been busily recovering those roots, first by translating, first by republishing Lily, who wrote in English, but in um, in Renaissance English. English. <laughs> uh, and then going and having some Latin stuff translated. And now we've gone back and we have like pretty much every extant Greek text translated into English how easy or hard it is to get those translations now is another matter, but uh, it has been largely done. And what used to be a little black hole in our knowledge, which was the Persian transmission, because mm-hmm. what happened is when the Arabs uh, conquered 
when Islamic Arabia conquered Persia, they burned a bunch of stuff. And um, but there are in Iran uh, texts, Persian astrology texts that are finally starting to see the light of day. Mm. Some people are translating those. And so that will help fill in the gap of transmission in the West. Uh, so it's an exciting time. Um, to be alive if you're into these yeah. traditional kinds of astrology. So there's still some mystery there because yes. they're still uncovering things, which yes. is exciting yes. going forward. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and that's been a, a, a huge focus of interest in Western astrology, Western astrology world of the, all these translations of these texts and yeah. Hellenistic astrology becoming more right. popular and all that. And yeah. so it's like rediscovering this bygone era, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Yeah. Now, what I did want to ask you in relation to the constellations that we were talking about yes. earlier, real quick, because the Indian astrologies, they're, the constellations are slightly different than that, too, right? Isn't there like, okay. there's a Thank little you. bit I'm of a. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> so there are actually three, and, and there's more, but let's just say for this conversation, there's three zodiacs. We've talked about the tropical or Western zodiac that's based on the seasons. I haven't labeled it this, but the sidereal zodiac is what the Indians do. And that is they, they pick a place that's the beginning of the constellation of Aries, and they divide that circle mm-hmm. into 12 equal segments. Okay, okay, all right. Then the third zodiac is what I will call the constellational zodiac, where Aries is tiny, Virgo is giant, giant. <laughs> Pisces is giant. They overlap each other. They extend over each other's boundaries. And that's a whole nother thing. Um, which is also some astrologers dial that in. You, um, you know, Bernadette Brady, I think, made that popular with her software. I can't remember the name of it, but you could like look at where your planets were in the constellations, oh. and you know, is your planet between the um, claws of Scorpio? You know, then it might feel a little, you know, pressure there. <laughs> so that's a whole nother way of like symbolically looking at the sky and and how you might relate to it is is that is that third level yes uh, or that third zodiac okay uh, which often that unspoken third zodiac is what causes problems down here because a scientist will say well those western astrologers don't know what they're doing you know the stars are like all over the place and it's like no uh, they knew that yeah but they decided to use the seasons and they decided to, just like the Indians decided, one of the earliest um, texts, the, the, or the earliest Veda, the Rig Veda, describes the sky as like a wheel with 12 spokes. Mm. So there's this notion of um, dividing the sky into 12 yeah. equal things. So we're seeing that in both Western and Indian. Yes. They're just choosing a different starting point yes. and then going from there. Yes, and then, and, then, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the use of, like, there's a lot of differences between Indian and, and Western astrology, but one difference is no Indian would um, describe themselves by their sign. That would be nonsensical. Like, mm. when we go, I'm a Leo because I was born when the sun was in Leo, they would be like, what? Like, they're much more likely to describe themselves as planetary types. I'm Jupiterian, uh. I'm Saturn. Um, and they don't, um, the, 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 the sidereal signs of the Zodiac are, are houses or homes that are owned by the planets and you wouldn't self-identify with the property. Yeah. Got you. you. 
yeah. more self-identify with the landlord. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense because that's the actual archetype kind of at play yeah. is the planet yeah. itself. And so oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, very cool. So that, so now that moving along, that's what they know as the procession of the equinoxes, right? Is, everything, is that the right term for yeah, that? Yeah, so the you procession of the equinoxes around? is basically, uh, again, because the Earth wobbles in a weird way, it appears as if the stars are slowly moving backwards against, if you fix the first day of spring as being your fixed point, and you're looking at this from Western astrology, it's like, hey, the stars are moving backwards. And it takes about 24, 25,000 years to go all the way around. <laughs> oh, okay. And this is where you get, you know, the age of Aquarius, age ah. of Pisces. Some of these, like, cosmic ages have to do with, well, when, on the first day of spring, now what stars are, are there? Oh, okay. Um, that's one of the ways you can you can. Get I know. I'm like, how do people process. calculate that? <laughs> when because everybody's like, is it the age of Aquarius yet? I'm like, I don't know. That's a whole. Nother, <laughs> that's a whole other topic. Which... Yeah, and I couldn't tell you anything about that personally. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. Um, so now, so now we know that you're versed in in the in the Western and the the Indian. Are there any other ones that are kind of in there? Because I've seen sometimes you're really like, I have five different systems, or like, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know if I know what you're talking about. However, <laughs> like, there are a lot of astrologies out there. And, um, you know, one of the things that's being left off our discussion, because it's, it's not my area of expertise, is Chinese astrology, oh. which um, is twofold. There's the time-based, quote, astrology, unquote, um, that we all know of. When you go to the Chinese restaurant, you oh, I'm you're the pig or whatever. Yes. <laughs> uh, they also have the month of the animal and they have the day and they have the hour, you know, so they, they have a system. It's a time cycle system. Mm. But they also have a star-based system um, that when I was getting my master's degree, I did study, but I, I haven't really retained much of it, mm-hmm. but there are some weird features like Saturn is viewed as a benefic in that system, oh. and there there are some weird weird features. But it was also very much a state run system because the mm. emperor was considered a representative of the heavens. Oh. So the astrologers did their work kind of in secret because if the if it got out to the general public that something weird was happening in the sky, it might not reflect too good. Yeah, it's a direct reflection. So, on it. <laughs> it was, uh, so it was kept up there. But I, but my understanding now is that that's been, um, you know, brought down to the common person. Uh, but that's and then there's Tibetan astrology, which took elements from Indian astrology and took elements from uh, Chinese astrology because they are located. Between, between those Each two other, great literally. countries, and kind of synthesized it into into Tibetan astrology. So they will use um, a, a sidereal zodiac, but they'll use some time cycle stuff from the oh, Chinese. Interesting. So there's many many different ways to skin this cat. We're many we're noticing ways, yeah. here. And uh, Bruce Schofield has written books on Mesoamerican. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about that. Uh, that's another form of astrology. Again, completely unrelated to to the other ones, and I'm not really that familiar with it, but I know that involves a combination of, like, time cycles. Well, the whole 2012 yeah. was arose from that, that tradition uh, that it was like, oh, everything's going to end, you know, although it didn't. It, and, it, and, it, and it wasn't because it was simply... It, 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 Making a big deal about 2012 would be like making a big deal December 31st. Oh, my, it's the end of the calendar. Yeah, and then you start the next calendar Challenger, for the next year. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, so we kind of, when we half learn things, we tend to 
Yes, and then there's a lot of uh, hubbub and excitement around yeah. it, and then you yeah. have like twenty book, twenty million books at the thrift store yeah. that all say twenty twelve, and you're like, no yeah. one's reading that these days. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that's that's funny. So there are a lot of different astrology systems out there based yeah. on different, you know. And I find it interesting. There's a, a big upsurge of um, uh, uh, Chinese people that are learning Western astrology yes. now, right? Like that's yes. taking off. That is taking off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wonder why they're choosing what about it, our, you know, this system versus their own. Like, I wonder what attracts <laughs> or makes that interesting enough to bring that over. And- I'm tempted to try to answer that, but uh, it would just be a guess. Uh, but they are, <laughs> they are interested in that, and I think they like some of the psychological dimension. Mm. Um, and we just have... Astrology is also, my understanding is, and one of your listeners can correct this in the comments, but um, astrology and communism have had not always the best relationship. Mm. So that might be another reason uh, why there isn't just more like indigenous astrology gotcha. running around. But yeah, they are, they are big consumers of, of Western astrology and also uh, Indian astrology. Interesting. Yeah. Now, so let's take that psychological component real quick. Now, mm-hmm. is that something that is embedded in the Indian astrology system as well? Is that okay? So, um, another way to answer what is the <laughs> difference between the two systems? We gave a technical answer yeah. about their frame of reference. They also have different rules. They have different ways of evaluating how a planet's going to behave. And again, just like Chinese medicine has different ways of diagnosing than Western medicine, they have they've evolved a completely different set of rules to handle each of their zodiacs. Mm -hmm. But another way we can look at it is that Western astrology, modern Western astrology, out of the box, does a pretty good job of delineating character and personality and psychological stuff. Mm -hmm. And I would say Indian astrology out of the box does a good job of describing your life from what I like to call the movie camera point of view. Mm. What's actually happening in your environment, to whom, to you. And it's not so concerned with what's going on in your mind. Yeah. That said, both astrologies can do both those jobs very well. So, um, and you've had some people on your podcast who represent more traditional prediction-oriented Western astrology. They are absolutely describing life from the movie camera point of view. Mm -hmm. And Indian astrology certainly has the tools to do a bang-up psychological who am I. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that most people culturally in India know who they are Mm. they're in a position of limited opportunity. So they absolutely want to know what's happening around them and how to maximize those opportunities when they present themselves and how to minimize challenges. You grow up here in America, especially where we're taught you can be anything you want and do anything you want. If you just like have enough gumption and you have enough will to do it, you can do it. But we're all like, Ah, my parents were neurotic. I don't know who I am or what I am. So the astrology answers that question for us. Like, who am I? What am I? What are my strengths and weaknesses? Like in India, it would be like, I know all that stuff. I need to know like brass tacks what's happening. So I think that's why they both present themselves in the different way. 
Uh, but I've certainly learned how, learned how to do psychological stuff with Indian astrology, just as I can do predictive stuff in Western. You know, that so. is fascinating because yeah. I know that uh, in Indian culture there is more of that class system going. Yes. Like more, I mean, you have that anywhere in the world to some extent, but it right. is very much more defined yeah. there. Yeah. And so that's really interesting to think about how they you don't even necessarily need that component because you're like, well, I'm already I know where I'm at. So now what am I interacting with? Right. Um, so it kind of, that's interesting. It just kind of blew my mind there a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like taking that one to the bank. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So that you, they can kind of overcross there a little bit if you choose to do so. Now, are there any, what, what else in the systems can kind of, how, how do we get to the one direction? Like what, what are the different facets or especially okay. in Indian yeah. uh, astrology? Bring so this way. I'm not a big advocate and if you don't like what I'm about to say, hang on, because I'm going to modify it in a second. Uh, I'm not a big fan of combining the two systems in the same, at the same time. Okay. Because they're like two languages that describe things. And if you're speaking, if half your sentence is English and half your sentence is German, very few people are going to be able to figure out what that sentence means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I use a layered approach uh, where I will look at a chart in a Western way and make notes about what I'm going to say about that. And I will look at the chart in the Indian way and I'll make notes about that and and do it. Now, as I said at the beginning, when people pay me, I'm pretty much doing Indian astrology because it just gives me so much uh, I don't need to go to those other tools. Not that they're not good tools. They're just yes. tools of another language, you know, and I've chosen to make yes. this my primary. However, there's one area where I do make that exception, and that's relationship astrology. Oh. And that is because uh, while Indian astrology has a whole bunch of really interesting, in-depth relationship analysis tools, mm-hmm. they're all designed for an arranged marriage, marriage culture. <laughs> Where the parents are hiring the astrologer Mm. to sort through the options for usually their daughter, but sometimes it's the son. Um, And uh, it's entirely different. I've never had a Western parent come to me (laughs) to do a relationship analysis. You know, in the West, we have a serial monogamy dating culture. And so over the 20th century, we have developed all these relationship analysis tools to address Mm -hmm. that. Um, what the Indians, so when couples come to me or someone comes to me and that's the issue, I will do a true East-West. I will look at the Western stuff and then I'll look at the Indian because in the Indian stuff, they're really concerned with, um, imagine you're getting married to someone that you've never met or you've met briefly a couple of times. Well, you better hope the mental compatibility is super high. (laughs) Otherwise, there's going to be trouble from day one. And so that's one of the things that that Indian astrology really excels at is like, let's look at the mental compatibility. Um, Now, you can score really low in that in Indian astrology and still in the West have a super successful relationship because you have something else that's the glue that holds the relationship Mm. together. Um, Like I say, we date. Uh, we're a serial monogamy culture. We have different things. It's not, even though India is changing, it's still like 90 plus percent arranged marriages. Wow. Oh, God, I never even would have <laughs> thought about that. Yeah. But but it's interesting that there, 
that because the astrology is so embedded in their culture that that's actually part of the process. They're like, we're not just going to throw you to the wolves. We're going to try to see where the best match is. And so that's fascinating, too, how that works. So often, uh, so there are a couple of principles, which I'll just throw out to those that are listening who are astrologers, that I think you can bring over, without having to bring over Indian astrology, just some principles that you can bring over. And one of them is there's this notion of sort of... um, equal challenge. So if one person, uh, and I'm just talking Western terms, one person's chart, it's like all trines and sextiles, and they need to get together with someone who internally, mm-hmm. their chart is all uh, squares, squares and oppositions. <laughs> yeah. That's not a good match because the person who has the easy life is going, I don't understand why everything is a challenge to you. Yeah. I don't get it. And the person who's, cha- so what they'll do is they'll match charts based on sort of simpatico. Oh, you you have easy life in this area. Let's find someone that also has an easy life in area. So you're sort of like, da yeah. Or if you have challenges, let's find someone that has similar challenges. Because it's almost like bringing you two together. That misery challenge, loves company. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Misery loves company. And it's not, you can be like a united front. And yes. it's not, um, and it doesn't like bring one tax party on down. Tax on the other person. It, yeah, it doesn't yeah. tax on the other person. Interesting. So there's that sort of concept you can bring over. Um, there's also a concept of Mars causing problems um, uh, in, 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 in relationship. And again, arranged marriage, you don't want um, that. There's going to be fighting, but you want to minimize. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to marry someone that's going to like trigger you all the time. Yeah. And um, so there are some things that you can sort of look at the Mars is in both charts. And rather than looking at that as some, not all, but some Western astrology books will tell you, oh, Mars, that's like sexual uh, chemistry. Well, maybe it's that, but uh, forget about that because in any kind of long-term relationship, Mars is going to be snippy fighting. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> that's, and so like, just look at the, the two Marses and, 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 and see how those yeah. work together. And, and again, if they are, equally troublesome, they sort of cancel each other each other out. Troublesome uh, within their own chart, charts yes. versus the troublesome yes. together. Yes. And, you know, I'll that. just throw this unrelated to our topic, but it's just a pet peeve of mine. You know, you pick up any, <laughs> and tell me if you agree, you pick up any Western book on relationship astrology, and it will say at the very beginning, the first thing you have to do is, like, analyze the charts individually because that will tell you the person's capacity for relationship. Mm-hmm. And then... The rest of the book is about, doesn't tell you how to do that. The rest of the book is how you like match two charts together. And so many people go immediately to matching the two charts. Whereas in India, there's all kinds of stuff we do within each chart first Mm -hmm. to get a clear map of what this person needs uh, for happiness. Yes. So, and that that principle is in the West, but I feel like we just give it lip service because I don't, I I just picked up a book the other day and again, at the beginning, it's real important you look at it. I'm not going to do that though and I'm just going to do what everyone else does, which is synastry, matching the two charts together, seeing the interconnections. But you can have some beautiful 
I mean, every astrologer has the story of, I met this person, we were the perfect astrology match, and it only lasted a week. Yeah. You know, so what happened there? Well, what happened is you weren't looking <laughs> within each chart. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes, and that's yeah. absolutely true. And I, yeah. I subscribe to that with you because yeah. I don't even look at sinistry charts. Personally, yeah. I don't look at, I just go straight to your chart. I was like, anything that I need to know about what you need in a relationship <laughs> yes. is going to be right here. Right. Um, yeah. and, and especially, I mean, you don't want to be looking at people's charts that don't even know you're looking at their charts or anything like that too. But I mean, you can see it's all there. It's all there. So that's funny. I, I hear you on that. (laughs) All right. So we have the relationship component looking. That's one way the two systems work. I'm, I'm finding it so interesting with the culture differences and how that culture, I do a whole lecture on Mars culturally and, Mm -hmm. um, in fact, that was the subject of my master's thesis was Mars in Indian astrology and Mars in Western astrology through the timeline and how culture affects what an astrologer finds important mm. and how the symbols manifest themselves to us come through the color of our, you know, forget the signs coloring planets. They come through the color also of our culture. Yeah. And... um I'm very aware when I get a client who's foreign born, if it's especially if it's a non-Western European country, I will try to read up a little bit about where they're coming from. Um, is it a culture that really issues divorce and avoids it at all cost? Is it like America where everyone likes, oh, I never liked that guy anyway. I'm glad you broke up with them. You know, so it's <laughs> like you need to, before you can counsel someone, you kind of need to know where they're coming from and what values they're bringing to the table. Absolutely. And then that will change how you, how you, view how you the approach astrology. it. Yeah. That's interesting because I actually had a friend of mine, uh, Monica Anna, if you're listening out there, she's from Poland and uh, she had suggested that as a podcast one. She's like, I think it'd be an interesting topic to, yes. you know, bring some different people from different areas of, yeah. of the world yeah. because you know not everyone's going to look at the moon the same way Correct. mars yeah. the same way because yeah. you know the principle of mothering or nurturing yes. that's going to be different in every culture yes. and so we have to take that into consideration yeah. as well at least be aware of it i i know that um yeah i, I mean your friend is, is spot on yeah i was like oh that's a fascinating topic because yeah. once again my mind was like you're absolutely right yeah. about that and and so as an astrologer um here's a little trick of the trade when I am talking to someone who is from, you know, India, let's say, mm-hmm. or, uh, well, India culture I'm kind of familiar with, but let's say I'm not familiar with Serbia or something like mm-hmm. that. I will say, when I see this configuration in America, it often manifests as this mm-hmm. or that. I'm not sure how that translates to your culture, you know, but I'll just, I'll put it in their mind that what I'm saying it, is I know is culture bound to my experience yeah. with mostly Western European type clients. Um, and I don't have a lot of Eastern European uh, experience. So um, that's one way you can do yeah. it. Just to, just to bring awareness to it. Absolutely. And it, I mean, sometimes it's not even about just, you know, a foreign country. You know, there are so many people that are foreign to us within our own culture, Correct. you know? And yes. so we always have to keep in mind that just the overall, yes. you know, Yeah, the New Yorker symbolism. versus the Californian, that's real different right? versus the South. Mm-hmm. I, should, I shouldn't say versus, but I mean, it's just, those are all different, very cultural. They're, they're 
enough cultural differences that I find that they manifest as foreigners in the chart. So sometimes when I'm looking at a chart and it will say, uh, oh, you may marry a foreigner, that might mean the New York born and bred marries the California born and bred because it's, that is a foreign culture. (laughs) Yeah. That is a foreign thing. I mean, essentially foreign and like that ninth house topics are just something that you are not familiar with and you have not been. And it's just different than, than what you're used to there. Um, And that's why we expand our horizons with what we don't know, (laughs) Um, which always makes for an interesting relationship, I'm sure. Um, So that's, that's fascinating as well. So we'll hear that culture uh, relevance. Now, what about, now I know what the, the biggest crossover I've noticed between Western Mm -hmm. and Indian is the use of the lunar mansions. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what those even are and do you subscribe to that at all? Yes. So, um, okay. (laughs) He laughs. Yes. I laugh because it's a simple question, but of course coming, my answer is going to be complicated, but understandable. I hope. Yes. Hopefully so. That's it. If you you go out tonight. Okay. And you look at the moon and you notice what stars it's by. Mm-hmm. In about 27 days, it will be back in the same spot in relation to those stars. Mm. It takes the moon about 27.3 days to go around the stars. Mm-hmm. So in India, they created a bunch of tiny constellations called nakshatras. We might translate them as lunar mansions. Um, but there's 27 of them because if you div- the circle of the zodiac has 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. If you divide that by 27, you get a nice 13 degrees mm. and 20 minutes. No, oh, 20 minutes. <laughs> I only mention that because in the West we have the 28 lunar mansions, which if you divide 20, 360 by 28, you get degrees minutes and seconds. It's a little messier and it's mm-hmm. a little more complicated. Um, but some cultures like China and in and the Arabs, they have a 28 lunar mansion system and the Indians have 27. And like I said, it's because 27.3 days is how long it takes mm-hmm. the moon to go around. Um, in That is the earliest strata of Indian astrology. It goes way, way back into prehistory. And each tiny piece of that sky uh, is associated with a different Vedic deity. So it was mm-hmm. very important for the old Vedic rituals that, you know, where's the moon? How are things configured? And things need to be in a certain place for us to do certain rituals. When the notion of a horoscope arose in India, um, that idea was so embedded in the culture, that's why they stayed or chose to use the stars as their backdrop. Um, but also, um, they're significant. You know, so often you can Google your, um, you know, moon nakshatra calculators, all different websites mm-hmm. that'll do it for you. And uh, it'll pop up a little nakshatra. And what I would advise people to do is, like, look at the stories of that deity, because often that is some kind of metaphor in your life. Mm. So just for an example, the very first nakshatra, which is the first 13 degrees and 20 minutes of Aries, starts at the beginning of Aries, sidereal and, Yes, Aries, I was going to say, sidereal. sidereal. Aries, <laughs> a sidereal Aries. Um, so probably you're either going to have to have been born really late in Aries or early in uh, Taurus 
in your Western chart and you'll back up into Ashwini Nakshatra. The Ashwins were the divine physicians mm. and they, they, were, they um, could move really fast. And so when a god was or deva was injured, they'd be there right away and they would minister. Mm. Da, da, da. So how does that show up? Shows up in modern life as you will see that being significant with physicians and people in helping I was thinking EMTs yeah. on the spot to like pick you up. You um, know? I haven't had any EMTs as clients, but that would be interesting to see if, if they're more represented there. Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of nakshatras that are specifically associated with healing, and I do see those prominent, huh. you know, the disproportionately prominent in, in, in people's lives. Uh, some people have taken these little nakshatras and turned them into kind of moon signs, sun signs, and you can get a little personality description. Um, but the more ancient use is this is this sort of Vedic, Vedic deity, and there's certain powers associated with that piece of the sky. And so if your moon is there or the degree of your rising sign is there, you may have a personal connection mm-hmm. with that. That particular deity. Uh, so or that's something you can, you know, kind of go online and and and, and play with. Um, in the West, uh, we do have lunar mansions that are tied to uh, Western magic. And I saw you had uh, Nina on a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. so um, that's something she'll talk about. Or Austin Kopic. I mean, it's it's uh, it's used. Um, there are different images. And uh, you can kind of capture the energy, the magical energy of that area of the sky. But it is different. They don't, um, they don't overlap. And it's um, like when I read the descriptions of them, they are different. Even though they'll say, oh, we got this from India, but they changed it, modified it, adapted to their culture, mm. blah, blah, blah. Um, and just for the sake of completeness, India at one time also had 28, but they took the 28th out because um, it was a uh, it was a special place in the sky called um, Abhijit and it was so auspicious mm-hmm. that everyone was just waiting for that time to before they would start anything because it was like guaranteed success and so the devas were like you know what this is too much a get out of a jail free card yeah. so they pulled it out of the zodiac, and it's the star Vega. So oh, the, uh, interesting. The, where Vega is is where Abhijit is, but the mythology is that Shiva like pulled it out, so now there were only 27. Uh, but it also makes for a lot of neat and interesting astrology that you can do with easy math because you don't have to break things into seconds like you do once you have 28. That's interesting that they pulled out. They're like, this is too auspicious. I was thinking it was like holding people up. Like everyone was just waiting to do something at this particular time and nothing was happening in society because it's the year. We're not to Vega yet. (laughs) That's very interesting. And so really uh, with Indian astrology, what we're seeing is there's a much more, much more emphasis on the lunar persona or the moon itself because of this versus yes. like we start out with the sun signs when we're talking about, you yes. know, but they're all about the moon. Yeah. And that's another thing too, because, uh, you know, I'll get people that will say, how can I possibly, I'm a Gemini. How can I possibly be a Taurus in, in Indian astrology? Well, guess what? You're not because we would never give the sun the job oh. of describing your personality. Gosh, yeah. It has another job in Indian astrology not your character. So um, that, like I say, it's that we use the same words, but they mean different things. What's the sun's job? It indicates the soul. It is the representative of your soul. So usually 
the house that it lands in is an area where you find some kind of soul satisfaction or deep satisfaction, whatever your concept of the soul mm-hmm. is. Um, <laughs> well, that's last week's, this week's episode that is out right now. We explored the soul. So yeah. <laughs> perfect follow-up here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So that's it. And okay. the moon in yeah, Indian the astrology moon. is your mind as a perceptual field. So it's not just your like emotional nature or who, you, you know, the first five years of your life. You know, I've heard different teachers do different things with the moon. The moon is your whole uh, approach to processing the data of the world. Huh. No, so now where's Mercury fitting in? So what's Mercury doing in in Indian astrology? Communicating like he does everywhere. Okay, so the moon is processing that. And, and, then and also, also there's an emphasis on the mercantile aspect of Mercury in Indian astrology, oh, okay. which is in the West, but we never talk about it that way. We think of Mercury as communication and talking. I never hear, or I rarely hear anyone, but our word mercantile, uh, yeah. derives from Mercury. It's transactions, yeah. essentially, because yeah. he's the one yeah. doing the, the yeah. back and forth. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, all right. So we're, we're yeah. seeing like the different flavor of the yeah. words. And, and then, yeah, not, not that there's an overlap. The benefics are still, you know, Venus and Jupiter are the two big benefics in both systems. Saturn and Mars are the two big malefics in, in that. But there there's um, a... a I was going to say more nuanced approach to Indian astrology, but I, I don't want to sound like I'm putting down Western astrology. It's just that in Indian astrology, it's very horoscope focused mm. and maybe the most horoscope focused of any of the astrologies that I know of. And I'm actually going to Demetra George's Hellenistic uh, retreat in a couple of oh, weeks. Fun. And I've been going through her book and it's really interesting as an Indian astrology to kind of mm-hmm. like see what was being done at the dawn of, of the Hellenistic tradition. But a lot of it is sort of like disconnected, from my point of view, from the actual horoscope. So in Indian astrology, what houses a planet rules mm-hmm. affects its temperament. Mm. And Saturn isn't always uh, bad for certain rising signs. Because like if you're Taurus rising sign, siderially, so sorry <laughs> if you're tropical, that's not going to help. If you're sidereal uh, rising, uh, then Saturn's going to rule the ninth and 10th, 10th house, which are two fantastic houses in Indian astrology. Ah. So Saturn sure is still the plan of delay and making you work hard, but it also is in charge of, you know, rising your career and travel and all these cool things, yeah. you know, so it brings cool things. So they're just, uh, as you parse out the jobs of different planets, that's how you're able to get both systems to work because they just, the rule sets are very different. Gotcha. As I said at the beginning of our time. Now, in, in, uh, now I have just a few more questions before, <laughs> like, well, Kenneth, let me answer these questions for me before we wrap up here. Now, with Indian astrology, we're not really seeing Uranus, Neptune, or Pluto in there too much, right? No. There, so do they not use those planets over there or the Great question. Extra? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, when the plants were discovered, so yes and no. In traditional Indian astrology, obviously they weren't there because they weren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We didn't get Uranus till Can't the 1700s. So, <laughs> uh, couldn't see it. And um, Jyotish, which is the actual Sanskrit word for, for Indian astrology, means light. So it's all mm-hmm. about light and what reflects I light. I got you. So you, just like a traditional Western astrologer, will also use the light example as to why they exclude the outer planets. Um, traditional Indian astrology doesn't because they weren't there. 
That said, there are many Indians that do put them in the chart, but they don't rule anything. They're just yeah. points. They're mm-hmm. just like significant points, much like um, like I believe Rob Han now. He, uh, he definitely uses the other planets, but they're not, you know, Neptune's not ruling um, uh, Pisces. Jeez, and yeah. there, there's no, that whole rulership thing, funny side note, came about because at the turn of the 20th century, from the 19th to the 20th century, astrologers believed mm-hmm. that we were going to discover 12 planets mm-hmm. and that each planet would get its own house. So even. And that was mm-hmm. the, and they had lost the reason why plants rule what they do now. Now, with the recovery of the Greek tradition, and I won't, you know, I won't do it here, that's another topic, but <laughs> there's, a, there's a rationale for why things are the way they are, but that was lost for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and they thought, oh, we're going to keep discovering planets, and soon we'll have 12, and then each plant will have its own place, and nature will be balanced. So that was the initial move to like find a home for these other planets. Uh, in India... That was never a question. It was never a question. And so there are uh, astrologers who will call themselves neo-Vedic astrologers who will use those. those. Uh, In my practice, I actually don't. And so people are like, well, how can you see what's going on? You do. You just see it through other ways. A different lens. Yeah, you just see it through a different different lens. And um, I will – I do have clients that will come to me because – they've gotten scared about something, you know, uh, Pluto's about to square my Mars, you know, and then I will throw it in the chart and I'll look at it and I'll see what I can tell them. Uh, but out of the box, I, 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 I practice a very kind of classic Indian astrology, but a lot of Indians do, do use them Mm. and use them, um, similarly to the, the Western understanding with maybe Pluto being the most, um, weird and, I yeah. reference everyone to Pluto, Pluto's weird history article that was in last year's AYA journal that I wrote. Oh, so you have an article on Pluto's weird history? What's it? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast where can, on that. It oh, is, uh, that's so. Uh, put that in your pocket for later. <laughs> so where can, yeah. where can we find that article? That is in the AYA journal, the Association of Young Astrologers. Uh, they publish one journal a year, and it came out last year, which would be 2018. So it's the 2018, volume two. Is the Ascendant, right? The Ascendant. Yes, yeah, there it's we the go. Ascendant. Yes. Uh, which, by the way, is chock full of fantastic articles. You know, usually. Astrology magazines are, in my opinion, very hit and miss, but they really did a great job. I'm really proud to be in it, and I'm in there with a lot of other interesting things. But I go, I look at the entire uh, history of Pluto and astrology, and it is a weird, weird history ah. when you look at it. And, um, I like it. I'm going to have to dig that, that up. <laughs> All right. And so the last thing I wanted to ask you in relation to this is because we talk about, you know, uh, especially in evolutionary astrology, you're looking at the, the North Node, yes. North Node and the South Node. And I know that's yes. actually a very big thing in the Indian yes. tradition, right? Rahu and Ketu. Yeah. So one of the reasons why, um, you might say, one of the reasons why I don't use the new planets <coughs> is that the mm-hmm. nodes are treated as planets in Indian astrology. Ah. So there are nine planets. They're called shadow planets, but there's a... Well, that's another thing, too. Another difference between Eastern and Western astrology is Western astrology, the myths came first. Mm -hmm. The Greek myths, they were in place, and then they learned astrology, and they were like, you know, I think 
What you call Ishtar <laughs> is Aphrodite for us. So we'll, we'll call Venus Aphrodite, which is what they called it in Hellenistic yeah. astrology. Um, and we'll call Marduk uh, Zeus, Jupiter. You know? So they mapped the deities onto, their, onto, their, uh, onto the planets. But those deities already had stories attached to them. In Indian tradition, all the mythology comes after the astrology. So all the mythology ends up being teaching stories about how planets interact in a chart. Um, now I went off on that tangent because what we, we were talking about, about Rahu and Ketu. Oh, Rahu and Ketu. Yeah, 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 yeah. We got chicken and so egg for Rahu, a second. Yeah. So Rahu and Ketu, um, they are due to a story. They were elevated to planetary status, mm-hmm. and um, they are they are treated very different than they are in Western astrology. There's a um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a whole other thing in its own. It's, but. A whole, it's a whole other thing of, of its own. But they are prominent, and they've always been prominent. And you and you pay attention to them, um, and you, you know, most of your Western software, it hopefully came with the North Node turned on. But they don't all, you know. Sometimes it's not even turned on. Like you got to go into the points and activate mm-hmm. it. You got to go into the points to activate the South Node. That would never happen. <laughs> you know, the Indian software, like it's, you're always going to see the nose because they're so important yeah. uh, in the, in the, in the reading of things. Yes. And so now does it take on that same soul kind of vibe or is it, is it much like the experiential, like you were talking earlier, where you're going to encounter something outside of yourself? You know, how the nodes seem to be like your spirit's going this yeah, way. <laughs> so um, I guess. To the person who says the North Node, the South Node is what you're kind of comfortable with or your past lives and your North Node is what you should be like aiming for and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, that does not make sense once you go over to the Indian mm-hmm. chart because really the whole chart is the map of your karmas for this life. Everything. Yeah. I mean, that's what the that's what they believe the horoscope is. The, the 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 Indian chart is a map of the karmas that you brought into this life, and some of them are really set and fixed. Others of them are loose. Mm. Some are barely there. So if you want it, you're going to have to do a little We've free will it. karma to generate it. Um, and so all of it does that. And then the nodes have a kind of a complicated relationship because they are influenced by planets that are either own the place that they're in or planets they're close to. They're almost mm-hmm. like a tincture that will take on, like if you've got Rahu at uh, five degrees Taurus, and which is the north node of the moon. Rahu's the north mm-hmm. node, Ketu's the south node. If you have Rahu at five degrees and you've got Venus at 10, you're going to have a Venusian type of Rahu, which is gotcha. going to be different than a Saturn type. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a Mars type. Um, and the, but, but just to give you like two keywords, Rahu is um, ambition. It's a head. Mm. It never is satisfied. It can eat, but it never gets full because there's no stomach for it to get gotcha. full. So where it falls in the Indian chart, there's usually um, desire and ambition. It's not necessarily bad. It's, it's bad if you're in a culture that eschews desires. But here in America, where more is better, yeah. often Rahu's doing like great stuff. <laughs> K2 not having a head, and there's a story about how Rahu got chopped in half, um, is this egoless, spiritualizing, creative force. Mm. And so where it falls in the chart, it often will um, 
manifest that way. Interesting. Depending on your life. Like if you're, if you're a business person and you have no time for art and you have no time for spiritual expression, then K2 becomes something that starts taking things away. You know, when do you turn to God? When everything's he taken away. He starts away for yeah. you, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you've got, uh, if, you, if you have a creative expression or you have a spiritual thing, then like K2's happy. That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have enjoyed yeah. this very much. <laughs> like look, yeah. putting them through these two, because yes. we're just trying to get to this one direction. Yes. And yes. I think about that all the time with the different astrologies out there, and especially all the different versions of Western astrology. Yeah. You know, we're all arriving somewhat at the same conclusion, just in different ways. I mean, really, factors. what is the client has the same. Who am I? What's happening to me? How do I maximize the joy in my life? Mm. And then hopefully <laughs> the Western astrologer, the Indian astrology, the cosmobiologist, yeah. the, the trans-Neptunian who's you know, using a dial chart, isn't even paying attention to houses. We're all answering that question with our own tools. Toolkit, yeah. Know? Yeah. And um, gee, I'm hungry and I and I need a satisfying healthy meal. Well, guess what? There's a lot of good options right? to nourish There's you. Many places to eat. Um, <laughs> but it's also where I think we're moving to where we can be a little more what is effective and what isn't. You know, it really, astrology is in the wild west still in terms of yeah. we're all doing our own thing and Something works for one person. You know, you go to a lecture and you're a lot, and the person swears by something, and you get all excited and you go home and you're like, "Well, it's not working. <laughs> what? What am I? How am I different than this person?" And because astrology is so weird, our own chart interacts with the astrology, the astrology we itself. do. Yeah. Yes, yes. So it, 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 it's a challenging thing. So I never like to disparage um, other astrologies unless I see a harmful form of astrology that's really like dictating to someone. Uh, and, and East and West can be guilty of that, you know, where you just lay a real heavy trip on someone. Yeah. None okay. of us should be doing that. None of us should yeah. be doing that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> all right. Well, this has been fascinating, Kenneth. So now, Thank I you mean, for me. absolutely. So, where can people find you? Where can people learn more about Indian astrology? Okay. So, uh, Kepler College and me and Gary Gomes, who was my mentor back in the day, we're going to be co-teaching a intro to Indian astrology class starting at the end of this month. Oh. That's through Kepler College. KeplerCollege.org. Mm-hmm. Um, I also occasionally teach a five-week kind of. Here's an introduction. Do you, mm-hmm. you know? Do you are you even interested in it? Here's some basic principles of Indian astrology, uh, and I also occasionally do a one-hour talk about what, you know Indian astrology. What's in it for you? Just to see if it's something you want to explore, explore. or not. Yeah. Give you enough. So you get an idea of the way an Indian astrologer thinks, and is this a path you even want to go down? Um, I can be found on the internet at uh, <laughs> celestialintelligencer.com. That's celestial like the sky. Intelligencer is intelligence with an R at the end. Uh, or you can just put kennethdmiller.com, and it'll get you there. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and you can write to me at kenneth at keplercollege.org uh, if you want to get in contact with me through email. Where to find him? Um, 
lot of ways to find me. Awesome. And so, of course, I will list all that on my own blog post so that you can get straight to Kenneth and Kepler College if you want to find out more. So where can you find me? Well, you can find me at energeticprinciples.com. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Energetic Principles. Uh, and, of course, I have my Patreon if you'd like to support the podcast and, and uh, myself and the speakers that come on. So you can do that over at patreon.com backslash energetic principles. Uh, and, of course, you know, there's a lot of people that want to know the difference between Western and Indian astrology. So spread this podcast with a friend. Share the good word and so that we can all kind of get on the same page and see that we're really not that different. (laughs) But there are just different guiding principles to these systems. Um, And if you also want to leave a nice review wherever you listen to this, that would help the podcast be seen further. So, all right. Well, Kenneth, you were a pleasure to talk to. I'm so glad we were able to work this out. (laughs) Yes, thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure. Great. All right, and thank you so much for listening. And as always, may the stars be with you. 